From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. Cannot tell you how excited I am for today's guest. He is one of my all-time screenwriting heroes, Paul Atanasio. Paul has created four TV series that have gone to air and counting. One of them is Homicide Life on the Streets, which is one of the forebears of our current golden age. You can draw an extremely straight line from Homicide to The Wire. Paul was also the initial creative force and executive producer behind House MD, one of the last great popular series on broadcast TV. At one time, I think it was the most popular show in the world. A smart medical detective story each week with a fascinating, flawed main character. Paul also wrote the Michael Douglas, Demi Moore, Barry Levinson thriller, Disclosure, and was Oscar nominated for writing the Johnny Depp, Al Pacino film, Donnie Brasco. That's a movie that many screenwriters I admire count among their favorites. But throw all those other projects out, and Paul would still be one of my screenwriting heroes, because he wrote the absolutely brilliant 1994 film Quiz Show, directed by Robert Redford and starring Ray Fine, John Turturro, Mira Sorvino, and Rob Morrow, which he was Oscar nominated for. If I were to rank my favorite screenplays of all time, Quiz Show would be right up there. It's historical fiction about a real event, but it's so rich and filled with moral dilemmas and crises of confidence and character. The movie tells the story of the rigged game show scandals of the 1950s, but it's really about the loss of innocence for three people, and it's about ethnic and class divides. The scene between one of the disgraced contestants, a Bronx working-class Jew, Herb Stemple, and the preppy, Harvard-educated Jewish investigator, Dick Goodwin, would be a perfect one-act play if you took it out of the middle of the movie and set it on its own. Not to mention the suffering we watch Charles Van Doren go through as his own fraud eats him up from the inside, and he has to face his father with the truth. If you haven't seen the movie, do yourself a favor. I brought Paul to campus, so I get to spend the day with him, which I am really excited about. He already dropped a little screenwriting poem on me just now, which I love. Talking about writing, he said a movie is a short story. A cable or streaming drama is a novel. And a broadcast show is a crossword puzzle. I love that. Anyone who's attempted those three mediums knows exactly what he means, especially trying to fit the pieces together for a satisfying detective story and a broadcast pilot. So, Paul is coming to my class, then we're doing a college tea, then we're going out for pizza and drinks. We're taping this, con- this convo in front of a live studio audience at the tea. As always, a giant thanks to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy, who's in the field videotaping the event. We'll take you now to the tea at Saybrook, one of Yale's 14 residential colleges, where I'm speaking to Paul in front of a packed crowd of students and faculty, all crammed into the head of college's house. One disclaimer, there's some clinking and clanking of teacups and saucers. Hopefully just adds to the mood. Anyway, here we go. Paul Atanasio. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft for their help getting the word out about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and much more. From craft perspective, curious, like, when you are writing a feature, what does your day look like? So not when you're in a writer's room, but when you are just No, that's a really good question. Yeah. 
It, it's, I have two answers. Okay. Like before I had children and after I had children. So you know, before I had children, I had very regular hours. And so I would get up, uh, drink coffee, go for a jog, come home and start writing. And then I followed very regular kind of banker's hours from like 9 to 5. Um, after I had children, you just can't do that anymore. And so I had to teach myself how to work within the constraint of you might be called away at any minute and you might not have the leisure of eight hours of uninterrupted quiet. And how do you continue to work that way? Um, and I did. You know, you can adapt. And ideally, you, you are able to find for yourself, and I'm sure anybody here who is a writer knows this, large blocks of time. Because a lot of times, it's a couple of hours before you even have the world in your head. Or if you're writing a screenplay, you need to hold the whole film in your head, even though you don't have it yet. But it has to be up there. And that requires tremendous concentration that's hard to do when you know the dog starts barking because the UPS man's here or whatever. But you can also adapt and do the other thing. But you have to work every day. Um, I remember, I remember I do the Sundance Lab, and there was a kid there. It was a very talented kid, but one of one one of my colleagues, an advisor, asked him like, "Well, like, when do you write? How often do you write?" And he was sort of like, he writes like once, you know, a couple of once a week or this or that, and everybody in the colleagues, the mentor group like our jaws dropped because you're just not going to get it done. It's really about industry. It's not about inspiration. And so I would say find a regular time that um, some people like to write at night. I don't do that. Like I like the early morning. Find a regular time that you like to work. And you don't give yourself like a certain page count you have to get to every day or anything like that. You just write for as long as you yes, can. Yes, if I'm on deadline, I do. I mean, do you? Um, if, I'm, if, if I'm currently on a project, yeah, I'll try to do three scenes that day. They might be terrible. The third yeah. scene might be unreadable, but I'll no, try to get No, if I'm on deadline, yeah, then it becomes like a way to deal with the panic of the deadline. Right. Is okay, you take a breath. If I write 15 pages a week for four weeks, I'll have 60 pages. And so I'm going to make that 15 pages by Friday. And I create that kind of structure. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, you were saying in class that you started off uh, reviewing movies for the Washington Post. Yeah. Um, did that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, many great filmmakers, writers started off as critics. Paul Schrader, um, a lot of guys in, in France with the new wave. Did that teach you how to be a screenwriter in a way that you might not have learned if you hadn't had that job reviewing movies? Yeah. Yeah. It's... Um there's all different ways in, you know, uh, but for me it was, it was being forced to have an opinion to see a lot of films because I was the only critic. There was no second string critic. I had to see four films a week and have an opinion and defend that opinion and that was a great discipline and also I got to see a lot of films. Yeah. Um, 
And you think that just sort of inherently, like, structure just gets into you? It just gets part of your bloodstream and makes it easier to write? Or dialogue gets into your bloodstream, or what? I think if you pay attention, but but really my development was very different because I really came out of uh, books. So when I was a kid, I wasn't a film buff. I was a reader. And... And it's a different way of telling a story, but that's where I learned narrative. Hmm. And probably there's some vestiges to that and how I approach things now. Um, you know, but I would say, like, whatever you want to do, I would, I would study narrative because it's, it comes up, you know, take literature courses, plays, movies, television. It comes up in every single field where you even see you're watching the news and they talk about, you know, Donald Trump's trying to control the narrative. Or I was talking to a friend of mine who's a hedge fund manager. And I said, well, what do you do? And he says about, you know, being able to tell the story of the stock. So that idea of telling a story is so fundamental to who we are as people. And that's never going to go away. Instagram, like they, the stories feature I don't know how much narrative there is in those, but the, but even if there's an idea of a narrative or an allusion to a narrative, there's this hunger in the human spirit for stories, and it transcends it, it, it transcends all fields. If you want to be a doctor, anything you want to be, and you'll have a richer life. Mm-hmm. And so it probably helped. You weren't just watching four movies a week. You were like actively thinking about them because you had to write reviews. Yes, yeah, so so I, had to, I had to kind of analyze why does it work, why does it right. doesn't work, and create kind of theories about... Um, and I will say I had, <clears throat> like many young people, I had very strong opinions that I was sure were correct. And I loosened up later on. So, you know, I, I really wanted a very tight narrative structure and like the early things I wrote all had a very tight narrative structure, which is great. Um, but, you know, I started really loving Wes Anderson, hmm. which is not about that at all. Right. The narrative is very haphazard. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. The life of it is in the design and the humor and... And the performances. Right. And so, you know, I, I you know, I, I've gotten to the point where I, I feel like I'm the world's greatest expert on the way I like to make screenplays. But I don't think that's the only way to make screenplays. Right. Um, and speaking of screenplays, in class you talked about how one of your early mentors was Joseph Mankiewicz, yeah. and you got some blank stares in class, but I imagine <laughs> among a film audience like this, you will get fewer blank stares. Can you, I mean, I, I was shocked. What, so what does that mean, that, that Joe Mankiewicz mentored you? Well, one of the great things about being at the Post was um, you could call, and it's a little bit true if you're at Yale, you call people up and you say, I'm from Yale, they'll, they'll say, sure, I'll sit down with you. And um, if you called people up and said you were from the Washington Post, they would sit down with you. In that case, Joe was getting an award at AFI, so they were calling me. Would you be interested in meeting Joe and writing something uh, to go with him getting his award? And, of course, uh, you know, what a thrill. And then I got to know him uh, as a result of that. And Joe was 
uh, highly educated, highly erudite filmmaker who believed that films should have the quality of literature. And that was the main thing he impressed on me. Um, the other one being, don't do it. What do you mean? He said, don't... Do I told him I wanted to go write screenplays. He said, don't do it. <laughs> he said, you know, go write plays. Like, you don't want to go out there. It's a mistake. Don't do it. Wow. From the writer of All Betty, if yeah. he knew how hard Hollywood was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I read an interview you did where you said, after graduating Harvard Law School, you were hired a law firm, and a senior partner told a group that he would rather be sitting in a vault doing document discovery in the middle of the summer than playing golf or spending time with his family. Mm -hmm. And that changed the direction of your life. Is, mm -hmm. that, is that true? Yeah. That was, his name was Tom Barr. I think he may have passed away. I think he went to Yale Law School. Okay. Um, he was the head of the litigation department. And I, I thought... You know, I, I didn't come from a fancy background, and I didn't think you could have an artistic career. And my parents uh, were children of the Depression, and you're, the feeling was that you had to be, you know, a, a serious person, like a doctor or a lawyer. Or, and, and so I went to law school. And when, that summer, when I heard Tom talking about his passion for document discovery, I just realized I was in the wrong place, but that I should find something I felt that way about. And that's where I started writing. I had already been writing journalism, but I started um, thinking about maybe having a career as a journalist, and then through this quirk of fate, that turned into being a movie critic, which then turned into a screenwriting career, mm -hmm. you know, which is what I've been doing for 30 years. And how many screenplays had you written before your first one got produced? Uh, well, Donnie Brasco was my third screenplay. That you ever wrote? Yeah. Wow. But it wasn't produced. It was supposed to be produced with Stephen Frears directing and Tom Cruise and Al Pacino. Wow. And so that was going to be my first film. And then Goodfellas came out, and Tom got scared and backed out. Because he didn't want the movie to... He thought they were similar. They really weren't similar. Um, but he thought they were too similar. And also, you know, now uh, Tom's famous for backing out yeah. of things. And... Uh, I didn't know that then. I was sort of like, what's happening? The world's ending. And, and then Al hung on for a little bit. But then Al decided he wanted to be Donnie. Huh. And that was... And then... Problematic. And then Al dropped out. And then... And then Stephen hung in there for a long time. And then... Stephen had a meeting with Mickey Rourke to play Lefty. Hmm. And Mickey Rourke showed up at the Beverly Hills Hotel in, as Stephen put it, a wes uh, waistcoat and no shirt. And then Stephen was out. 
<laughs> That's where the bell rang for Stephen at the bottom. So, um, and then it hung around. But I remember Stephen said to me, it's all about Al. And Al's going to circle back to this. Wow. And, and then you'll have your movie again. And that's what happened. Eight years later, uh, Al was older. It was a better part for him. And he came back and then we had a movie. Yeah. Um, with a different British director. Right. Mike Newell. Coming, was he coming off Four Weddings and a Funeral? Yeah. I love that movie. Um, so I asked you what clip you might want to show from your work that we could then talk about from a craft perspective. And you picked a scene from Donnie Brasco. So for people who don't know it, um, the film is loosely based on the true story of Joseph D. Pistone, played by Johnny Depp, an undercover FBI agent who infiltrated the mafia in New York in the 70s under the alias Donnie Brasco. In this scene, he's explaining a key expression to two FBI technicians, played by Paul Giamatti and Tim Blake Nelson. So let's listen. Hey, can I ask you something? Wow. What's forget about it? What is that? Forget about it. It's like, uh, if you agree with someone, you know, like Raquel Welch is one great piece of ass, forget about it. But then, if you disagree, like a Lincoln is better than a Cadillac, forget about it. You know? But then, it's also like if something is the greatest thing in the world, like Mingiro's peppers, forget about it, you know? <laughs> but it's also like saying go to hell, too. Like, you know, like, uh, Hey, Bully, you got a one-inch pecker, and Bully says, forget about it. Forget about it. Bully, forget about it. <laughs> Sometimes it just means uh, forget about it. All right. Thank you very much. I got it. Let me tell you something. I don't get this bow for lefty. What? Forget about it? Fucking forget about it. Do you remember writing that scene? Yeah. I do. Um, okay, so what can you tell us about about that scene? Was that always? Was that in the first draft? Was that I was around? It wasn't the first draft. Um, I think it wasn't the first draft. You know, um, the original concept of Donnie Brasco. Donnie Brasco was based on a book that Joe wrote about his experiences, and lefty was not one of the it was really about his relationship with another guy and and lefty was just like a couple of chapters in it but it was clear that that's where the life of it was and um and when barry uh that was an assignment barry levinson bought the book uh and when i sat with him what he liked about it was that it was like diner that basically it wasn't these dignified mobsters lit by Gordon Willis who, uh, you know, in dark rooms who, you know, look like Marlon Brando. It right. was guys like the guys in Diner who are just endlessly scheming and never really getting anything done. Right. That was the concept. That was, the, that was where we started. So it had to live the, um, you know, from a craft perspective, the... The dialogue, the humor wasn't decoration. The decoration was narrative. That's great. If I could put it that way. And, and, and so, you know, this forget about it. What was unique about Donnie Brasco was there were tapes. You know, because everything was wiretaps. 
and the wiretap tapes existed and I could listen to them. And so you could get the sound in your head. So I had access to Joe, but also I could just hear these phone calls, um, hours of them. And I'd drive around my car and I'd listen to the tapes. And forget about it kept coming up and coming up and coming up. And it just occurred to me that it was a funny scene to have the FBI, which is the straightest organization in the world, trying to figure out <laughs> from these tapes, what are they talking about? Right. And what is, what is forget about it? Right. And so that's where the scene came from. That's awesome. That's great. It's so interesting that uh, Levinson saw Diner in that. Yeah. That's great. Um, so I've told you I'm a, a giant fan of Quiz Show, um, your screenplay. Um, in an interview, uh, another interview that I read with you, you wrote something that never occurred to me um, about the movie. I've seen the movie a lot. You wrote, a lot of the sensibility of the movie in terms of what we're saying about show business comes from my experience and certainly Redford's. What's interesting about living here in L.A. is that it's so different from the East. In the East, you find people with cynical attitudes who are deep down, naive, innocent, not cynical at all. But out here in L.A., you find people who are, on the surface, impeccably nice and adopt this kind of faux naive attitude. They seem like perpetual adolescents who play their video games and wear baseball caps and talk about their families, but they're killers. Incredibly cynical. And that was a real shock to me. And that sensibility informs the movie. So is that, and and then your new project that we talked about in class has a, a little bit of an element to that, a police chief moving from New York to LA with similar attitudes. So with Quiz Show, I would love to hear a little bit about how it was your uh, attempt to really talk about your experience in show business, if in fact that's what it was, or the people in show business versus the people in New York? Well, it was set in show business. Mm-hmm. So, and, and yeah, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about a writing career to me and probably any artistic career is, I mean, when I, when I started out, I had so much anger and it was so useful. It is so useful as a writer and artist to have that anger. Hmm. And um, so when I said that, um, I don't know if you can tell from the quote, because <laughs> the quote seems very... I don't know. Can you tell? It doesn't seem too angry. There was so much anger under it. Seems it. like a very good observation. Uh, no, there was like <laughs> so much anger. Interesting. At the phoniness. Yeah. Um, and and then as you go on, uh, you know, like I said, I've been doing this now for thirty years. You just aren't that angry anymore. I'm not, and you have to find some. Oh, things are starting to make me angry, <laughs> but uh, but you find other things to do. You find other fuel, uh, and you do something else, but. But you do, I, I feel like you recognize it, um, like in Atlanta, which is a show uh, that I told you I admire very much. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he has a lot of anger. And it's really, it's, it just gives that show so much punch. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's hard as an old, you, you just don't do that when you get, right. you just don't have it. And so, were you so ch- you do something else, right? Were you channeling in Quiz Show, channeling that anger into Dick Goodwin's character, the Rob Moreau character, his his anger? And no, it was just Charles it was Mendor. pervasive. Uh, it was you know the way that Enright and uh, 
his partner were portrayed. Um, I mean, they're all kind of Charles. Uh, uh, Charles Van Doren's obviously a liar, but his dad is a giant phony. Um, every characterization in that was uh, was uh, you know Herbie was a tremendously ironic figure, and he was kind of horrible. He was horrible to his wife, right? Right. but he was telling the truth, right? But he was horrible, and I think it, it fueled a lot of. I mean, Redford said to me it was the, the angriest script he ever read. Really? Yeah. And that was what appealed to him. Because he is... He's two people. You know, he's he was that beautiful, polished, blonde... Uh, you know, he was so beautiful when he was young. And uh, with that smile. But... Inside, he's like got this real red, red ass, angry Irishman, hmm. um, and it and it brought that. He was able to bring that to that film. Huh. It was a great partnership in that way. Wow. Um, why was Charles Van Doren's father? You know, and he did these bucolic films about you know fly fishing and whatever. Right. And there was this other piece of him that just had to come out. Right. And that was that was Quisho. Um, why was Van Doren's father uh, phony? The way I portrayed him. Uh-huh. I'm not saying he was a phony. The Paul Schofield character. But yeah. yes, because you know he. I guess. I mean, I wouldn't say he was entirely phony, but he. He. He was kind of above it all. Uh-huh. To the point where he didn't understand what was going on with his own son right in front of his face. Interesting. And then he is holier than thou about it. Right. You know, oh, the TV, I can't be bothered to watch TV. Right. And that terrible poem I wrote for him to read at right. the lunch. <laughs> you know, he's kind of... Um, Interesting. Yeah, it was a... It's that's an angry movie. So you felt sympathy for Charles Van Doren not being able to tell his dad because his dad was so in that moment. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, I, I I I feel sympathy for all my characters. I feel I feel there's an ethical responsibility to love your characters, and if you don't, then you shouldn't write them. Hmm. You even if they're they're, you know, quote unquote bad people. You need to love them and understand them. Right. Um, was and I'm going to open it up to questions um, in one second. Uh, is Quisho the movie that that changed your career? After? Yes, it is. So, what yes. was it like after versus before? Oh well, that's a great question because if you ever have this problem, it's a high class <laughs> problem. But success is much more difficult than failure. Success is much harder to navigate than failure. How so? And I think in my case, mostly because uh, you think things, you think there's going to be some pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And there is a lot of gold, but there's no, nothing really changes. Right. You're not a happier person. You're not a... Yeah, and, and really what matters is doing your work with people you like and admire and and that's 
and the awards and the money and everything, you know, it just, it really is, it, it, it's pretty simple. It's just like, do your work. Right. Did you do things? Did you take assignments that you would go back and do differently it's like, now? It's like Chekhov. How's that? We must work, Uncle Vanya. Mm. Right. I just saw a production a few weeks ago <laughs> in New York. Um, so w- did you do things you would have done differently? I mean, if looking back now, would you have done things differently? No, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have any regrets. I did, you know, I did what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a, you know, a certain kind of Hollywood screenwriter. And um, you know, there are other careers that I really admire um, particularly the Cone brothers, um, who were not as susceptible to the whole Hollywood of it. But, you know, that's what I wanted. That's why I went out there. You know, I would read these stories about like Robert Town driving around in his Porsche with his Commodore in the back seat and dating all these beautiful women. And I thought that was great. Like, that was, that was so exciting <laughs> to me at that time. Uh-huh. And... And, you know, and I did that. Yeah. And that's what I, you know, that is what I wanted. I didn't really want to be the Coen brothers. But in retrospect, you know, look at their career. And it's because they stayed away. Right. But you, know, you, um, you would like, so when the Coen brothers did Blood Simple, which was their big breakthrough, um, they signed a three-picture deal with Circle Films in Washington, D.C. Huh. Because those guys were going to give them $5 million a picture, and they could make their pictures. And, and that's what they've done consistently for years. They just make their pictures. Right. And the stars got bigger. So now it's like George Clooney and Brad Pitt instead of John Goodman. Right. And, and uh, you know, Jeff Bridges. But, but they're the same films. Right. And so you had these three giant movies come out in a, just a few years. Yeah, I had, a, I had a really big year where I had Quiz Show come out in the same year as Disclosure. So Disclosure... Uh, which is a pretty good film, yeah. But um, but it was a hit, yeah. So and then Quiz Show was nominated for five Academy Awards, right? So it was kind of an explosive debut in a way that I think I found confusing. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on, um, and and I didn't have the I didn't. Nobody told me just keep doing your work. But like I said, but I don't have any regrets, and I did certain things um, that turned out to be kind of great. Like, yeah, I mean, you uh, went into TV and had some yeah. giant successes. Yeah, so I went into TV when nobody was going into TV, and and now I have a track record in TV. So and now is it's all TV, right? And so <clears throat> so I have this great opportunity to have a second act. You know, so I'm very active in TV now, and and it's really fun, and it's completely wide open. Yeah. And there's tons of opportunity, and, you know, and they're making every kind of show. I mean, when I saw Transparent, I just felt like, well, if that's a TV show, anything's a TV show. Right. And how great is that? Right. Because talk about Chekhov, that's a little Chekhovian film about yeah. that family. And magnificent. And it's a half hour, but it's not a sitcom. It, was, it just broke every rule. 
It was for a minute audience. Nobody cared. Um, and it was magnificent. Yeah, and I love that you're, you're one of the few writers who's now able to go back and forth between broadcast TV, CBS, where you have a big hit show, and you're developing for Amazon, a couple projects, it sounds like. And so most people have to either stick with streaming cable or broadcast. But that feels like a great way to spice things up, to go back and forth, because it's such different kinds of writing. Yeah, no, you know, I, I, really, I really like broadcast. I grew up with broadcast, and I like the idea of big audience. You know, uh, it's kind of, it is what I grew up with, but it's also this idea that we're all one country that I find sentimentally very appealing. And a show like Bull, which reaches 8 million people a week, you know, Transparent, when it was starting, I think it was reaching 80,000 people. Right. And I like that. And the whole world. I like that idea that it's, and uh, yeah, House House, House was, was eight, 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 eighty two million people around <laughs> yeah. the world were watching that. It's incredible. Yeah, so uh, you know, and and when I traveled, you know, like in Italy, they were crazy about House. Yeah, crazy about it. it used to be on two two different channels, two nights a week. Oh my God, it was on Rye and Sky, and the whole country shut down. Like they were nuts about it, and. I love that. I love that. And then I also love that there's this opportunity to do things that don't, you know, quantity changes quality and, and, and you have to do certain things for a big audience that maybe you don't always want to do. And I love that there's an opportunity, uh, you know, like my show at Amazon is for, is, doesn't have to hit all those marks that it would have to if I wanted to be on CBS. Right. Um, and it doesn't have the commercial interruptions and those strictures. Uh, but it's not either or. You know, it's not either or, and you can do, um, you can do whatever you want. Now. Yeah. Um, okay, what questions do you guys have? And I'll probably repeat the question for the podcast. Do you mind if I ask about house? No. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's I mean, all fair game. I mean, so for me and a lot of people, you know, House sort of defined the procedural for a whole generation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, since then, a lot of medical dramas have tried to be House clones, you know, running the same themes of surly doctors and broken administrations. A friend of mine actually co-created one of those shows, The Resident on Fox, and he kind of hates it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fair to say most of those shows haven't got quite right. So what do you think made, like, House unique? What House get right that these shows have failed to? So the question is about what made House unique? Well, first of all, it's always good to be first, you know, um... There's there's always, in any of these really successful shows like that, there's always a magic that happens. Uh, there's always magic in the casting. So Hugh Laurie was discovered very late in the process. Um, and it wasn't a natural fit for him. He mostly played kind of upper-class twits in England, and this was a very different part. Um and he was perfect for it, you know, in the same way that, you know, ER without George Clooney is not ER or, um, you know, so forth and so on. There's always like these, there's like a kismet to, to finding the right actor. Um, I don't know. It's just a really well-designed show. 
you know, that's the other thing. This is a really well-designed show. It's kind of a perfect mechanism. And David was a wonderful writer, really wonderful writer. And so everything kind of came together. I know that's not the answer you're looking for. Um, well, there's been such a resurgence of Sherlock Holmes shows recently in movies. Does it, um, you know, that idea... I'll tell you one other thing. Yeah, there, was a, there was good karma. Because I signed, a, I made a gigantic deal at Universal. Gigantic. And it was a three-year deal. And I delivered nothing for them. <laughs> Everything failed. <laughs> and I felt so bad that I said, I'm going to just do another show outside of the deal. Uh, and I'm going to make it a hit. Because I, I, I don't want you to eat all this money. It was, it was a lot of money. And, and, then, and then we did it. And, and everybody forgot all the money that they had spent before. Um, but it, was a, it came out of that impulse. And, um, and, you know, I think Lost came out of the same impulse. I think J.J., had some big deal and he was like outside of the deal and he felt bad and he owed something and so maybe that's the secret <laughs> like be a nice person <laughs> and make money for your partners and was it did Shore pitch you the idea of Sherlock Holmes in a hospital no he came in he had this insight about he basically wanted to write an asshole doctor that's it yeah that was really what he came in with he, okay. he was he was at the doctor <laughs> and, 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 and that experience of, you know, the doctor saying, um, the doctor saying, you know, don't smoke and then the patient goes out and smokes or don't eat this and the patient goes out and eats this and how the doctor must feel after the door closes about what a jerk the patient is, what if he just said that to his face? <laughs> that was the germ of it. And I laughed, and that's where we started from. <laughs> that's another good one. You know, if you start with a place where you're laughing about it, um, you know, that's where Quiz Show started. You know, where Barry Levinson was saying to me, like, it's just, it's so incredible, it's so incredible how self-destructive uh, Herbert Semple was. Right. It it's, makes you laugh. You know, that he got so upset that they made him lose on Marty <laughs> that he brought everything down, including himself. Um, and we would just laugh and laugh about that. And, <laughs> and, and that was where that started. You know, so that's maybe another one. That's cool. Uh, time for a couple more questions. Yeah, TJ. Curious how, what your process for coming up with new ideas for the show the movies are. And I guess more importantly, how do you, like, when you have a basic idea, how do you pick which ideas are the ones you're going to actually pursue and spend a lot of time writing and fleshing out? Okay, so what was the, f the first part was... How do you come up with ideas, new ideas for, you know, premises and things for shows? How do you come up with new ideas for and shows? How do you turn that maybe you know, four-sentence idea into, like, how do you pick which of those ideas you're going to actually spend months you know, sometimes it's, uh, I would say it, it has changed. So when I was starting, 
it was much easier because I just was glad to have a job. So when I started Donnie Brasco, which was the beginning of my relationship with Barry Levinson, who was so influential on me, um, I was just happy to have a job. I hadn't, I was, I had been out of work for several months. I was young, uh, and this was great. They were going to pay me money to write a screenplay, and I could pay my rent. And that's, you know, that simplifies things. I would say now it's a more, you know, a lot of times it's who am I going to be talking to every week? So when I did Bull, uh, I went and met Dr. Phil, and I just thought he was completely fascinating and one of the most original minds that I had ever encountered. And nothing he ever said, no answer to any question I ever had was what I thought it would be. And it was like, okay, so this is a project where I get to hang out with Dr. Phil for the next several months. How bad could that be? It was because he was fascinating, really a fascinating man. And um, so a lot of times now I'll pick projects for that reason. Or, uh, you know, I have, uh, um, you know, my my project at Amazon that I have currently is set in the fashion world. And uh, it's a friend of mine who worked in the fashion world for 20 years and have been trying to figure out how to do a show based in that world. And, you know, I get to talk to her, you know, every week as opposed to somebody I don't want to talk to. And so a lot of it is is that. Um, you know, uh, the ideas come from, you know, and that some, a lot of times for me the ideas are kind of counterpunching. So, you know, she wanted to do something in fashion. So I said, okay, let me try to figure this out. And then I find by the end of the process it's, you know, oh, this is about, well, like Donnie Brasco is a great example. Like Donnie Brasco uh, was about my relationship with my father, but I didn't know that till the premiere. You know, I end up, you know, I end up going in, I end up going on the couch and I write it and I think I'm writing about the FBI and the mafia, but it's about me and my father. And so that's the, that's a lot of, it's backwards for me a lot. Um, I read a lot of periodicals. I try to keep up on TV and see what people are doing. So I'm cognizant of the idiom. Um, and I try to be, you know, alive to my feelings Right. Um, any last questions? One more? Yeah. So wait, the question is about the grind of being a writer and the nine to five hours and well, how like, you find inspiration. You know, in in you know, I'm doing all TV now, really. And, and in TV, there's a system. So you write, you start out with, you know, the what they call the two pager, uh, which is usually longer, where you just kind of summarize your pilot story. Um, I usually try to start before that with some kind of series Bible and explore who my people are, what the concept is, what I want to say or what I might want to say. Um, and then, you know, from the, the Bible to the two-pager to the outline to, um, 
and then getting feedback along the way. So again, if you're a working writer, well, the feedback's built in, but if you're not, you can get feedback from people you trust, and, and, and that's important, too, because you think you're communicating things, uh, but you're not. And, or you, you know, or somebody says, I didn't get that, and, and I thought you were saying this, and maybe the thing that they thought you were saying is actually a better idea than what you thought you were saying. And so you, the feedback's a really important part of it, and then you write a script. Um, and and I, I feel... I just said this in Aaron's class, but I feel like it's very important, crucial, to not just fill in your outline. Like if you're just doing paint by numbers, you're not writing. Like for my process, the existential risk of being lost in the project and not knowing where it's going is essential. And so I have the outline, but... I I don't sit there and say, okay, these are scene one, two, three, and I'm going to write those scenes. I look at the outline, then I get started, maybe in a different place, or maybe scene two is different, because I I don't know where scene two is going to be until I've written scene one, and then I've once I've written scene two, so it's a kind of a I don't know if you'd call it a heuristic process, but it's it's not just filling in the outline. But if I get lost, I can go back to the outline. Like if I just say, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Any last questions? Yeah, all the way in the back. I'm wondering what you stay away from. Uh, I heard when you were talking about Danny Brasco that you thought you brought something to it. You discovered it later, but you thought you brought something to that story. If I'm putting myself in a story, I feel I can approach it and I can begin to tell that narrative. If I know something about it, I feel I can tell that narrative. I'm wondering what you approach where you say, well, I don't know, really know enough about that, or I haven't really invested in that. That's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question, and that has, I'll give you two answers. Would you mind repeating the question, though? So he was asking, um, I'm sorry, what's your name? Charles. Charles. So Charles is asking, uh, is there any subject matter you stay away from, either because you feel like you don't know that world, or you just want to stay away from it for other reasons? Is that? Or, or you don't? You can't really tell that. You're not tell that story. Yeah. So that's a great question because that's changed for me, and it changed for me. Um, I did a. a a project that I really loved a lot called Tong Wars that ended up not moving forward in partnership with Wong Kar Wai, the Hong Kong director. And I struggled and struggled and struggled. I believed when I started that an American screenwriter who knew how to write pilots could help a Chinese director bring the Chinese immigrant story to an American audience and a Chinese audience. That was the grand ambition of that. By the end of it, I no longer felt that that was a, that I should have done that project. 
And that's not for lack of trying or good intentions. So I did tremendous amounts of research. I had literally, I just donated them to, to a library. I had nine cartons of books on that project because I didn't know the Chinese experience. And I didn't know the Chinese-American experience. And I didn't know the language. Um, but I thought I could do it. And I came out of the other side of that process thinking, no, actually, you shouldn't have been writing that project. <laughs> and, uh, and I think part of why Quisho and Donnie Brasco are such good films are, you know, Donnie Brasco was about the Italians. Like, I, I'm an Italian. I, I, I knew that world. Quisho was about, you know, people at Ivy League schools who are so smart they're dumb. Well, I could relate to that, too. <laughs> and... This was this was not my story to tell. And so that old thing that they teach you like in a high school writing class about write what you know is still true. And yes, I think there is a I didn't think this, but I think there's a limit to how much of myself I can find in material that's too far away from my experience. You know, now that said, what's interesting, and I may be deluding myself again, but I have become really interested and drawn to writing women characters. Now, is this another one where some woman should be writing? You know, so Nancy, the show I have, I'm developing for CBS. That's a female protagonist. I have tons of rationalizations about why I feel like I should be the writer. But maybe they're wrong, and I don't know. I don't know if, if gender is different, but on that one, uh, race, culture, and language was too far for me to go, and, and I learned that. Um, then there's other material that <clears throat> that's interesting that's too close, and that's a, a different problem where... Uh, there are certain experiences that I have had that I want to write about, but I'm not ready. So they're my direct experience, but they're so painful, and they, the pain is so deep, and the heartbreak is so deep, that I'm not ready to write those. Um, and then I have the luxury of you know, because I have a thriving career of postponing that and going and writing my CBS pilot while I figure out, while I get ready for that. And so that's that's a long answer to a very good question. <laughs> um, okay, was that it? Get to everybody? Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Awesome. That was fun.